In this segment, we'll experiment with the boundaries of storytelling, featuring some of our friends, mentors, and advisors. We'll share perspectives and reframe the narratives that fall on a spectrum. We'll have unfiltered conversations around life, business, and everything in between. Between the vantage point of a deep thinker and an atomic player. Between an objective mind and a subjective heart. Between the truth teller and the truth seeker. Between two sides of the coin. Our guest today is from a sector that has been so much in the news over the past 18 months, and he's going to spend some time with us, giving us an insider perspective of it. Manoj has spent more than a decade in the biotech industry, having worked out of two continents and with deal-making experience in over 20 countries. He's currently the head of corporate development and business strategy at a global clinical research organization called CBCC, Global Research and spends his day at looking at potential partnerships and investments and inorganic growth opportunities for the company. So Manoj, it's great to have you here today. Thank you so much for joining. How is it going? Very good, Oscar. Thank you so much for uh, having me. Such a pleasure to be here. Really excited to speak to you guys today. Awesome. Great to have you here today. Bashwat has told me you've been traveling to Germany lately. What brought you here? So, funnily enough, uh, Frankfurt holds a pretty big pharmaceutical conference once every two to three years. So that, uh, you know, before the pandemic, the last pharmaceutical conference that I attended, the last time I got to see people in person shake some hands was at Frankfurt. So that nothing basically happened and I've just been stuck on the computer. So that's what brings me to your side of the woods, like every two and a half to three years. That's great. And Frankfurt only or is it like different countries in Germany as well? No. So, I mean, my travels are pretty much restricted to Frankfurt, but uh, Germany, in fact, has a pretty vibrant biotech sector per se. There are a few emerging biotech companies, uh, you know, out of Berlin. There are a few in the mines area uh, as well, in and around Frankfurt, Dusseldorf. In fact, I have a couple of friends from the Indian pharmaceutical sector who've actually migrated and are now based in Germany, working for, uh, you know, a lot of the German biotechs and pharmaceutical companies. You guys uh, are sort of combined with the Basel region, the Swiss biotech sector as well. So both of this combined together, it's uh, emerging as a you know region for hotbed for innovative activity per se. So exciting times ahead, hopefully, for the uh, you know biotech space um, uh, in your part of the world. Thanks, Manoj. So, uh, of course, disclaimer, Manoj is a very close friend of mine. <laughs> so it, it's really an honor to have you on our show as well, Manoj. So... Would love to know a little bit about this vaccine um, news that is that is propping up across the globe. I mean, it's a very sensitive topic as well. And of course, uh, I'm I'm fully vaccinated, luckily out here in Bangalore, India, and um, I just got my uh, shots of Covaxin. And uh, Oscar, what what vaccine did you take? Pfizer BioNTech, also fully vaccinated. Very nice. <laughs> so Oscar is also fully vaccinated, and I hope Manoj, you are of course you are from the industry, so you'd be definitely be vaccinated as well, right? For sure. But yeah, I mean, uh, it's funny. The three of us have different vaccines here. So I was uh, actually in the US for about three months before I came back to India. So I was actually vaccinated in the US and I got the J&J single shot vaccine. So it's, it's funny. Three of us, three different corners of the world, three different vaccines. The funniest part, all three different vaccines utilize three different technologies. The Pfizer-BioNTech, of course, is kind of, at least the media reports it to be the gold standard of vaccines. I, I shouldn't say the media reports it to be. Uh, the results also have, uh, you know, proven it uh, similarly. That uses uh, what is called as an mRNA technique. Sashwat, I think you're kind of familiar with the technology, what CRISPR uses, what Cas9 uses. This vaccine also uses a similar messenger RNA technique, basically, to kind of induce the human body to make spike proteins of the coronavirus and then train it uh, to generate antibodies when the virus hits you as well. That's what the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine uses. Covaxin uses a technology that has been, that's probably the most well-established technology. Uh, Pfizer's vaccine might be great, but it's, of course, a newer technology. We don't know what the long-term effects might be. Covaxin is using something that Jonas Salk, Jonas Salk used in the polio vaccine many, many years ago. They've basically taken the uh, coronavirus, inactivated it, introduced the dead virus into the human body. And that's how they're training you know, the virus to, uh, training the human body to generate antibodies when the virus comes in. So that's what Covaxin is using. So 
I think you're pretty safe, man. I, meanwhile, I'm using the, I got the J&J vaccine, which was a single shot one, immediate technology between the mRNA and the inactivated virus one. Still kind of using the similar concept. Compared to you two guys, uh, my efficacy data seems to be on the tester side. So uh, <laughs> I might have to be in the market for, you know, another booster round of shots again, maybe in some time. But I think the verdict is still still out on that. But, you know, this is kind of a testimony to the fact that the speed with which the sector has responded to this global crisis, the fact that the three of us are sitting here, the three of us have taken completely different vaccines. At any given point of time in human civilization, something like this to have happened would have taken 10 years. It's taken us 12 months. So yeah, I mean, we owe the biotech sector a lot. And I'm not just saying that because I'm from it. I genuinely I genuinely do mean so. I think they've uh, pulled us out of a fire, really done, uh, a lot of the scientists. So they deserve all the plaudits that you know we can give them. Yeah, absolutely. And um, before taking the shot, I actually uh, gave a call to Manoj and checked. <laughs> there's a saying that you don't know, know what you know and know what you don't know so if you don't know which vaccine to take and uh, when to take so talk to at least a person who is more, much more knowledgeable than you so over to you oscar i think that's very interesting what you said it took us 12 months to get those different concepts to the marketplace what i would like to know it's just like you mentioned we have three different or there are more possible ways to get vaccinated why isn't there like one way to do it? Why are there three different or more different concepts? So any technology, Oscar, of course, you know, comes with its own iterations and has kind of evolved over the years. Vaccine development as a technology, you know, we when when Salk made the first polio vaccine, I think that was in the mid 1900s. So vaccination as a concept has been there for a long time. We've, of course, you know, worked on several iterations of it and have been bettering it from time to time. The last time a virus such as this kind of impact, it wasn't a pandemic, but it was, it was SARS epidemic, right? So that happened about a decade or so ago. That was the last time when you were under such a threat. During that time for us to construct the virus, figure out what the virus structure actually looks like, it took us about a year and a half. This time it was, if I remember right, I think it took us about uh, 30 days, maybe lesser, maybe 25 days. So technology has evolved significantly, you know, in, in, in terms of the past uh, 10 years or 12 years as well. Our vaccine responses, our, uh, you know, timelines towards vaccine development have also evolved. Our approaches towards making vaccines has also uh, evolved. In some cases, like in India, Covaxin that Bharat Biotech manufactures, the technology, the old technology that they use is something that they're very comfortable with. They have the manufacturing infrastructure and the manufacturing support needed, uh, you know, that can basically scale up this vaccine to much larger doses and larger scales. So they were kind of comfortable with that technique. Pfizer or Moderna, they used the MRA technique. They had the necessary manufacturing infrastructure in place. Another point to be noted is that these vaccines need to be stored under heavily refrigerated conditions. So the warehousing infrastructure that you need for transport and supply of these vaccines is very different compared to the others. Now, you know, you can transport a vaccine in the US and Germany at minus 40 or minus 50 and, you know, degree centigrade or something and, and ensure that it's uh, given to citizens. Uh, for us to be able to do that in India is, is going to be a very difficult enterprise. So at this point in time, we're probably better off, you know, with the older technology, with a technology which is which has been around for a longer time, but which for us is easier to you know administer. So that kind of explains why there are so many approaches uh, floating around. Because this is such a commercial effort, different companies are doing their own thing. It also boils down to you know what the uh, knowledge inside of the company looks like. What has the company's history been in approaching scientific problems? Uh, what's their core area of competence? So that's why that's why you will see. In fact, you will see a new wave of vaccines also emerged. All of these vaccines are injections. There are vaccines currently in the pipeline right now which are intranasal. So these will be vaccines which can poof, just be administered into your nose and that's the vaccine, right? And I mean, why would anybody want a shot after that? So there's an entire wave of other vaccine approaches also coming. So yeah, I don't know. Next year, maybe you get your booster shot through an intranasal vaccine in Germany. I understand that. So I just want to know that how can I too aggressive against the pharma industry? How dangerous do you think it is that the media pushes like different people who do the vaccine, the, the vaccine, like 
push like one company who does the vaccine? Is that any kind of dangerous to the population? I mean, every vaccination is like proven to be, or at least proven to a different point that it's it's not dangerous to the population. But do you think that is there is any danger in pushing a company building this vaccination? You know, Oscar, that's a great question. That, that's actually a great question. And um, I'm in two minds. <laughs> my answer here not because i'm from the industry but there's a there's a scientific angle to it and there's a commercial angle to it also i'll go with the scientific angle first when take yourself back in time to march or april last year the pandemic was setting in the numbers were getting horrific especially in uh, you know in europe horror stories are emerging out of italy and other places at that point in time you know we just needed a solution we just needed an answer if you were running a country, if you were the head of a government, if uh, you were the Minister of Health in Germany, you would not want to hear a vaccine development guy come and tell you that, sir, it's going to take us 36 months before we give you a safe vaccine. That is not the answer you wanted to hear. The answer that you wanted to hear was, sir, you know, give us six months. We'll figure out something that works. You know, that can help panic subside. That might be, we don't completely understand what the long-term effects of this would look like. But it's, this shot is not going to get you in hospital or not going to cause you something super adverse in the next eight months. So as a policymaker, I guess that's the answer that I would have wanted to hear as well. So I would have said, okay, you know, guys, go ahead, do it. Let's, you know, we'll figure out the absolute long-term effects later. But let's just make sure, let's get something that works and which is reasonably safe. And I guess that's what people ended up doing. Now the commercial side of it, I think there are 350 plus clinical trials medicines or vaccines happening around the globe right now more than half of it is absolute crap and a lot of people listening will absolutely agree agree with me on this because a, a lot of it is based on you know companies trying to uh, <laughs> there's a nice saying in hindi but i can't find the english equivalent but it's basically companies trying to seize the opportunity of you know riding the covid pandemic wave and making money by basically, you know, repurposing older programs or doing something or just making announcements and just testing stuff and uh, doing things anyway. So that is there. That is definitely there. But I would say that whatever approvals have happened, whoever has been given the emergency use authorization by the US FDA or Europe or even in India, I think people have been given this on solid scientific rationale solid clinical testing evidence and, and the scientific temper around the development of the at least the vaccines which are currently being administered is great, is, is really good. And I'm hoping just by, you know, Charles Darwin's law, a lot of the weaker vaccines and the ones which don't make sense will automatically fall off the way because anyways, uh, things are kind of looking up now in most cases. So a lot of the lower hanging fruits will fall by the wayside. So we don't, we don't need to worry a lot about that. What we do need to worry about is that, yes, if you ask me that, but Manoj, I don't know. I mean, what can you assure me that this vaccine is not going to do anything to me in 10 years? Yeah, I don't know that, Oscar. We actually don't know because uh, we've never tested this. Uh, so we don't know what the long-term effects are going to look like. So yeah, we'll just have to wait and see. The only thing that we can tell ourselves is, look, we didn't land up in a hospital. Our families didn't land up in hospitals and, you know, we're relatively safe because of, uh, you know, we, we got what we needed. So yeah, I hope that answers your question. It was a little long-winding, though. Absolutely. Thanks for your perspective on that. Let's talk a little bit more about biotech in general. And we've been talking about, before our recording here via email, and you said you genuinely believe biotech is going to fundamentally alter humanity over the next 50 years. Talk us through why do you believe so and how is it going to change humanity? So, yeah, I mean, I say that. I say that a lot. And a lot of people come and tell me that, yeah, okay, you... You're selling things in your life and you're coming and selling ideas outside your life as well. And I laugh, but I genuinely do believe it. Now, biotech as a concept, right? Oscar and Sashwat, let's, I'm not talking about the, you know, in your minds, if biotech is a woman or a guy in a white lab coat in a lab in Europe or US or something. No, no, no. Take that aside. The first biotech guy or woman was basically the person who made alcohol or who fermented yeast. That was your first biotech guy. You know, biotech happened, started happening from there, not from the labs. So it's been, it's been a part of our lives for a long, long time. But what has happened, I think, in the past 20 years is that biotech has transitioned from being a concept to an idea whose time has finally come. 
biotech as an idea has finally arrived why do i say that is because we right now are sitting at a place which is kind of the confluence of uh, computing automation and ai all of this if you link it to biotechnology it opens up applications which have never before been thought for in humanity or which you know which can impact areas that we've never ever thought about uh, before at all the first case in point actually has been the pandemic the pandemic came the biotech sector arose and they were like yeah we have been training for this for the past 20 years we know what to do we will figure this shit out and that's what it did and this is one of the first areas that you're seeing biotech impacting humanity per se <laughs> moderna for a company went to a 180 billion dollar valuation company just over the course of the past 10 months but that's a said <laughs> that's a said but so as i said this is one of the areas the other uh, if i had to lay down like four main areas where things will fundamentally change i would put them as biomolecules biomolecules would be your drugs and therapeutics and stuff like that the other would be biosystems as in engineering of cells or tissues or organs the third would be biomachines the interface of technology and biology you know neuro driven prosthetic or something like that too and the fourth is biocomputing biocomputing will sound straight out of an isaac asimov novel when i talk about it you guys will think i'm crazy but we we'll, we'll get to that later but uh, there was a mckinsey report which came out i think last year which said that about 60% of physical inputs to the global economy can be replaced by biotechnology what this basically means is 60% of your human you know touch points that you guys or or i we experience or we sit through in our daily lives these will be done or accomplished through biotechnology it's basically you know this will it will transform economy societies what we eat what we wear the kind of houses we live in how we transport you know what's the fuel that we use everything will be impacted by biotechnology i think in the next maybe 20 years or so if i had to pinpoint a place in time where i could say that okay this is where the biotech revolution started early 2000s when the human genome was mapped that was at that point in time it was a i think it took 100 million dollars to map the human genome now moore's law is something that you guys would be pretty familiar with right i mean technology expanding and what the uh, cost drives down to moore's law based moore's law would put it that between 2000 and 2020 mapping a hum- human genome would have got us from 100 million to i think about a million that's what moore's law says right now the cost of mapping a human genome is a thousand dollars so the industry is faster than moore's law this 1000 dollars will probably get to 10 dollars or maybe even free in 3 to 4 years what this means is that you oscar sitting at home you're not able to sleep properly you know you get your you have mapped out your genome you consult with your doctor about okay what is it specifically that uh, you know i need to change in my sleep cycle which maybe my mattress or my current bed is not providing your doc your doctor provides you inputs based on that and your mattress provider can hook you up with a solution which is absolutely custom made and tailor made to your genome and what what you need it can so even apart from the drugs or therapeutics or this landscape biotech is going to impact us in in ways that a lot of us you know are probably not imagining or you probably don't know at at present i mean you know you guys know of the uh meats which are you know being synthetically made so technically uh, impossible food just doing that yeah. so technically the world can be vegan you know we can stop eating meat completely renewable energy people say is a great solution for fuels and stuff like that but the wind is not going to make plastics for you right the wind is not going to make material sciences for you the sun is not going to be uh, not going to be providing materials for you all that is actually going to come from biological sources your fossil fuels are going to run out in i think 45 years post that the human race will depend on biological sources and uh, biotech techniques to come up with a source for fuels and uh, for materials so yeah i mean again uh, this is kind of an overarching picture of why i really believe that the next 
50, 60, maybe a century is going to be defined by uh, by biotech. I think if I had to give an advice to future generations, coding was super important for the past 30 years. It was great to learn binary. But I think our future generations will have to learn to combine binary with biology. Uh, you know how to code in 0 and 1. You will, know, you will have to learn how to code in A, T, C, and G as well. Combine it with uh, how to crack DNA. Because I think that's what's uh, going to drive uh, human future. Excellent. I think you touched upon a lot of uh, pointers. So let's go a deep, at least in a pointer that we are really focused on. It's, uh, so obviously there was a saying last year, I, I mean, everyone got to know about it, that a lot of um, uh, startups really uh, got on the wave of uh, this uh, opportunity that comes in, right? Never, never let a crisis go to waste. So a lot of startups across the globe got funded, especially in the biotech and healthcare space as well. So if you were uh, like the projections that you were uh, giving, right? I mean, what are some of the trends in the VC ecosystems in your industry per se? If you could say, of course, you are long on biotech. If you have any shots as well, would love to know your thoughts on those. So I would never short biotech. <laughs> I just wouldn't, but that's just me. Uh, I'm sure there are people who would. But uh, interestingly enough, I think a lot of people are unaware of this, that at least in the U.S., the biggest sector with VC investments outside of tech is actually biotechnology. 10 years ago, as a sector, it was kind of languishing because it's it's regulated, it's time-consuming, it's capital-intensive, very scientific, so general investors probably wouldn't understand it. But I think it's, it's definitely stepped outside of that over the past uh, eight years. And the returns, it's... So I think three years in succession now and well on well on way for the fourth year in succession biotech vc investments and ipos and returns have exceeded year exceeded themselves year on year around i mean it's like an olympic medalist beating his own record every time he goes out to bat that's what biotech vc uh, is currently doing in terms of trends a lot of vc money is primarily going into i would say three main areas um, one is cancer we still haven't managed to beat the shit out of cancer as an industry we are trying there are certain portions of it which we've which we've been really good at there are certain portions of it which we haven't cracked at all something like a stomach cancer or a you know pancreatic cancer it still is something where we've been able to extend life only marginally you know once patients are diagnosed with it but some cases like breast cancer, there's been a significant difference between what a patient suffering from breast cancer would have had to undergo in 1970 to what a patient with breast cancer has to undergo now. So cancer as an area is where a lot of money still goes in. Another big area is neurology. And within neurology, this actually kind of ties into my earlier biotech uh, story. Human world is aging, right? I mean, we're all, we're all aging, we're all getting old. What's the one problem that no one in humanity has ever been able to tap? Uh, okay, the biggest problem is not dying. That we're, that we're still fixing. I, I get to that. The second problem is, uh, you know, neurodegeneration. As you get old, you lose your physical or your mental faculties. Diseases like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's. These are diseases which afflict significant portions of the population with not too many solutions in sight. So a lot of VC money is going into such areas. These are incredibly tough problems to crack. You know, for the past 30 years, we've been doing it, but they're on the horizon. Things are on the horizon and, uh, you know, we can hope to address some of them fairly soon. And the third area is uh, gene therapy. CRISPR, Cas9 is kind of the most advanced gene therapy technique, which is there in the, which is, it's not commercial yet. It's still under testing. Maybe 10 to maybe I would say 10 to 12 years before, you know, CRISPR Cas9 technology can actually come into the market. And, you know, it's something that people do. But we can definitely look at the day wherein we can solve monogenic problems, as in genetic problem, which can be fixed by altering a single gene, something like sickle cell anemia. I genuinely believe that ours and our children's generation is the last generation where we'll see sickle cell anemia. By the time my son has, you know, a child, my son will probably have, uh, you know, a pre prenatal screening of his uh, of his infant before he's born. The prenatal screening is all in place. You can find out what the probabilities of uh, genetic defects are going to be like if his uh, son or daughter has the predisposition to a gene towards sickle cell anemia. They will just be able to perform a single while the child is in the fetus. They will be able to eliminate that gene and replace it with a healthy one. 
completely eliminating sickle cell anemia altogether so i am i really believe that's going to happen not just with that one disease but maybe with quite a few more so for some of the simpler gene therapies this is the last generation which is seeing them they will cease to be a part of uh, humanity to two generations from now some of the more complex ones we're getting there maybe in another two decades or so things again will be will be vastly uh, different so yeah these are the three main areas where a lot of vc money is uh, going into another trend that i am seeing though post pandemic is that we need to be better prepared uh, all said and done you know even though we reacted very uh, fast and uh, in, in terms from in terms of you know getting our vaccines on board and doing what we could but i think a focus should be there on preventative rather than reactive technology and i think that's what a lot of money will also be going into is how can we avoid you know being a part of such things ever again how can we do that so uh, a lot of research money will also be going into those areas very exciting times so i think manoj what i heard and correct me if i'm wrong what you said is that cancer is a big big um, problem that a lot of startups and the vc ecosystem is collectively trying to you know Uh, address that and the second one was i think uh, breast cancer or and the third one was like gene therapy and uh, neurology second was neurology and the third was uh, gene therapy and third one gene therapy so what you're saying is that in the future there will be more designer babies there, there's a high possibility that with the, these gene editing technologies a lot of uh, other other use cases might crop up that's the short aspect too in case you're coming to that but sorry sorry i interrupted go on with your question <laughs> No, no. So, so my question is, um, uh, if these are the trends that uh, a lot of uh, VCs are currently following as well, what do you see that how their decision making, uh, you know, metrics or process would be in deploying the capital in the next five years? Do you foresee that they are really betting on the long, long trends? Because obviously there will be a, a lot of other ecosystem players will come in. There will be government, there will be healthcare institutions, there will be civic bodies, and there will be a lot of society in general as well, right? You just cannot. I mean, of course, if you are a big VC fund like A16Z, then you can have a counter narrative along with the narrative, and then push push through whatever you are planning to go for. But majority in the VC ecosystem, venture capitalists, how are they deploying their capital, or at least what's their rationale of actually deploying the capital into multiple uh, use cases or into startups as well? Here's the beauty of the VCs in biotech, Sasha. When you attack such problems, right now the ecosystem doesn't exist. a therapy is not in place yet patients need the drug you don't have you will not have a government you know body or an insurance provider coming and telling you what to do or what not to do patients need it patients are dying at this moment in time you go and tell somebody hey, you know what we have this patients we can extend the patient's life by at least 7 years there's no debate uh, that's going to come in after that so and that is why also a lot of the vc money goes into these areas or challenges which are which are kind of like blue ocean challenges these are you don't know if you put in like truck loads of money today after 10 years is something really going to come out of it but if it does you know that you know how big a home run that is so my point being that vcs right now tend to worry less about you know the exterior ecosystem aspect of it they tend to focus more very much on the teams leading it that's a key criteria in in the biotech space because here what you're betting on is a scientific rationale and b you're betting betting on the founder's brain unlike please don't slaughter me for saying this but unlike tech in tech i think you would depend to a large extent on a founder's execution abilities also people say right i mean you can bet on a bad idea with a good team right but you know you'd much rather bet on that rather on uh, rather than on a good idea with a bad team i don't think that applies in biotech you have to you it has to be a great idea it has to be a great team you know who's doing it so i think that's where vc's focus is more you know they they tend to focus on where these ideas are coming from the us has a fantastic ecosystem of uh, ideas and technologies transitioning from academia and universities and and europe does too europe does too in fact uh, germany has a fantastic uh, you know max planck institute and a few others which are absolutely top of the line so these guys are looking at founders and technologies emerging out of labs. i'll i'll quote one particular lab that's top of my mind there is a lab in mit which is run by a professor called dr robert langer that lab has been responsible for generating i think 60 plus biotech companies just over the past 20 odd years 
60 plus companies have emerged out of it. That's those are the kind of you know areas where VCs are looking for where's my next idea going to come from, which lab is it coming out of, who are the scientists who are going to run this for me. So I think VCs are obsessing more about that. They're obsessing more about the space in which they are operating as as well. Competition is intense. If you're working on an oncology product, if you're working on a cancer product, you know that there are at least 50 other companies working on similar basis. So you get grilled a lot with regards to how are you proving your science? What's the kind of animal models that you've used? Uh, what is the rationale that you're using to establish that, look, this is something that can work in the human body? What's the kind of, uh, you know, I'll use some scientific jargon here, please bear with me for it. What is the kind of, uh, you know, in vitro assays that you guys are using, that you guys have used in the past? What's the biomarker evidence that you guys are showcasing that this can work? So that's where a lot of VC due diligence and a lot of VC, um, you know, brain is going to go, um, you know, versus versus the external thing. I think the external thing comes right, right to the end of the life cycle of a product. To be very honest, 90% of companies don't even make it that far. Uh, or no, not 90% of companies, 90% of products don't even make it that far. So that comes right at the very end. So it's, it's, it's something that um, I think, I think that's something that the pre IPO investors would be more worried about. Uh, the VCs at this scale at series A, at series B, at pre seed or seed would purely be, you know, going after the science and, and, and looking at the science. So yeah, that's, that's why uh, being a biotech VC is actually Pretty hard work. <laughs> so I think a following question to that is that, um, of course, uh, you are passionate for your uh, the profession that you are in. You are really passionate for the sector that you have been researching deeply in. If you were the decision maker and you had a you know a certain dollar value attached to you, how would you deploy your capital into what streams of startups that you would be evaluating, and how would you? I mean, I would love to know your decision making process per se. Yeah, that's another great question. That is another great question. I will. Again, answer via, I think, two Manoj stories. One would be the Manoj with an Indian. Actually, this is kind of something that we are we are doing now as well. I would not necessarily go after the, you know, big dollar areas of solutions uh, right now. India still is struggling with a lot of therapies, uh, a lot of uh, diseases where our children or our patients do not have cost-effective solutions or options yet. Uh, so for me, that would be a personal priority to get patients in India access to great new technology at prices that are affordable, at things that you know can be can be done in India. That would be my focus area. You know, if it if it were just left up to me, that would be my number one go to thing. I'd look for creative solutions for that. Number two, if I was just told to look at just look at the U.S. market. And look at uh, look at what's being done there. I would actually again do it a little differently. We I would go after what are called as orphan drugs or rare diseases. These are these are diseases which probably affect less than five hundred thousand people in the U.S. annually or something like that. Big companies, big pharmaceutical companies, a lot of the large biotechs, they don't go after these diseases because it does not make commercial sense to them. Because at the end of the day, there are only so many patients who can you know, buy your product, who uh, doctors can prescribe your product too. So it caps your uh, annual sales level. So I believe that, you know, going after that pie, kind of there are the FDA incentivizes you also for it sufficiently because, you know, you're going after something which is a smaller to the pie. But it, it solves two things. It, it gives you space in a market wherein you can figure out what can be commercially viable for you, work out the economics. And also you're bringing a solution uh, to an underserved population for sure. So that would be that would be my thinking for it. Yeah, but I'd have to make a pretty kick-ass valuation model and Excel sheet uh, if I had to justify it. But yeah, I'll get there. I'm guessing. Sure. And I uh, would love to know how, if you were to put Manoj, the, the hat of a person itself, right? How Manoj, irrespective of the profession he is in, how is he deciding or taking various decisions in his life? Do you have a decision-making template for yourself or do you follow some components that you really stick on to? I mean, something that you'd love to know. <laughs> I'm, I've been through your other work, right? And you, you guys have had some fantastic people on board. And uh, my decision-making matrix is 
not nearly half as <laughs> you know great or sophisticated as some of the one some of the guys that you have spoken to <laughs> it's, it's it's very basic i think at a very basic level i place a lot of importance on uh, values so my workplace uh, my life my house and sashud you know me for a you know me for a long time so more than a decade actually <laughs> so um, values is what is most important to me and i think anything which does not align with what i am fundamentally as a person i'm a, i like to think of myself as a reasonably kind and a pretty honest and transparent guy and i think if there's anything you know in terms of values which kind of collides with these three main foundational values of mine that's kind of a no go for me from a from a decision making perspective and uh, i think the same applies i use that same benchmark with people uh, as well so that's a very very basic answer but uh, yeah I, i hope that helps yeah we'll we'll make a framework around that value driven uh, making framework so don't worry on that but but i would love, love to probe a little bit uh, on that for example uh, in your day to day operations or day to day life right uh, the way you're living if there are like two roads that you are supposed to take i mean or if you are in a at a, at a juncture where you see three to five roads and uh, each one is equally important and uh, valuable so how do you decide i mean uh, we all are rational beings so we know the mathematics and the numbers around it you will do a typical due diligence but besides the value do you have any other metric that you really go deep on for example and you do in thinking in bets says that you know to to decide between two decisions two good decisions is a difficult art if one of them is a bad decision the other one is a good decision obviously rationally you'll go for the good decision but when two decisions are equally good how do you decide on it so i'd love to know your thoughts on those a lot of times whatever uh, when i've had to make like big decisions or things which impact me and my family people around me i use a pretty silly test but it's worked well so far i choose the path which basically makes me sleep better at night be quite honest with you i just i just choose choose the path which you know kind of makes me i i believe that getting to bed and sleeping an 8 9 hours of contented sleep is at a fundamental level what a lot of humans are aiming for you know you can go after all the commercial success that you need you can go after all the personal growth that you want you can go after all the fame that you want great you can do that but fundamentally when you go to bed and when you're looking at yourself in the mirror and when you're going to bed at night if you're not sleeping a contented man or if you're sleeping very worried certain things need to change about how you're living in your life at least that's what I, that's what i believe so yeah whenever i have come to a road like that yeah i've thought of you know what helps me sleep better at night and i've taken it i've taken it it might seem like the more conservative or for want of a better word or you know a more uh, you know safer bet to some but if you think more deeply about it if you apply it two cases in your life where you've had to do something like it you'll realize that it's not always the safer choice which makes you sleep better at night then going after a, a more dangerous choice also can help you sleep better but you are the one who decides that priority right so it's linked it's very very deeply linked to the kind of person that you are so that's my thing got it so it feels like it's like a sleep test whatever whatever decision makes you better for a good 7 to 8 hours of sleep in the night is is a good decision so uh, i'm just uh, you know on a lighter note i think maybe after 5 years with the uh, predictions that you rightly gave right with the gene editing and these things and coming up i think those those elements could be also changed which means that everyone can go for a good night sleep irrespective of the decisions they make because that has been already wired into them the world would be a much better place to live in if all of us went to sleep happy at night and if everyone was sleeping contentedly we would not have like i'm sure 20% of the world's problems can just be eliminated by this no i don't think so i think big pharma and the big tech do not want us to sleep <laughs> happily ever after but uh, yeah i i think um, that's a good answer manoj loved it oscar what do you think how do you take decisions i i really loved that what you said manoj because thinking about value what's valuable in your life and i've just read this book it's called start from john acuff and he said in your life you need to find your diamonds and let's say your diamonds are your family or your friends and you have to make a decision do i want to work this day like whole day or do i want to spend some time with my family think about what's the diamond in your life and if you make the decision my diamond in my life is my 
mother, my dad, or my, my friends, whatever it is, take this decision. And then just as you said, you can sleep good at night, right? And I think that's very important to find these diamonds in your life and then plan accordingly. Anyway, Sasha, what, what about your decision-making process? Would love to know more about that as well. Sure, I think I'm pretty, um, uh, how do you say? I'm a rational as well as an emotional and sensitive person. So obviously I take decisions thinking few years ahead of time. So obviously a couple of decisions may go wrong, but uh, usually whenever I come to a juncture, whether I have to take A or B, I always evaluate those decisions, taking into all the people that I'll be working or in, or I will be in very close proximity with into consideration. So if that is a place that I'll have to pinpoint on, then I go for it. If that's um, a profession that I'll have to follow for uh, the coming years, then I go for it. So people play a very pivotal role uh, in my life. So all the decisions that I take, I usually uh, look to surround myself with the best of the people around them, whether it is talented folks or whether it is people who have really, um, or people who are really deep thinkers, right? You know, I love uh, to be surrounded by um, uh, amazing thinkers throughout my life. I mean, from my school days to uh, my college days, Manoj knows that as well. So to going, I mean, I, I went to um, uh, Germany for the first time back in my college days uh, as a part of a World Business Dialogue Conference. It was a great conference to be in primarily because I was surrounded by three of 300 of the best folks across the globe who flew into Frankfurt and then to actually Cologne. So, um, so any decision that I take, um, usually I take, take into consideration the people that I'll be working for, for the good amount of time. Also to be surrounded by the right people and be in the uh, close proximity of friends and family as well. So that's how I take. But yeah, I would love to um, delve a little bit uh, deep into the, some of the current themes of the pop culture as well. I mean, Manoj, you are a veteran sales professional. You've been doing sales for almost like 10 years. I personally have learned uh, a little bit of sales offlet and uh, would love to know your sales journey and some of the nuggets of info, valuable information that any folks can learn from uh, you as well. I don't think I'm a you know, nugget of value kind of person. Yes, I have been a part of sales profession for a long time. I deeply admire the profession, deeply. Why I say that is uh, to put a play on people keep complaining, life's a bitch. Life's not a bitch, life's actually a pitch. You're pitching everything, you know, from the day you're born, you're basically pitching from the day you're born, you're pitching your mom for milk. That's, that's how you start off with your life. And then you go through your entire life pitching for different stuff. The sad part is that, you know, once people get into a sales profession from the outside, sales is looked at as very, it's looked down upon. It's not considered as, you know, one of these professions that or, or vocations that people should aspire to or, you know, that people go into. And I hate that because ultimately for any company, startup, Fortune 500, Google, biggest company in the world, the revenue generators are always the sales guys. The sales guys are the ones who are bringing food to the table and they're doing it through skills that basically everyone needs, you know, at any given point in time. Sales is basically relationship management. That's what sales is. You know, working on fine-tuning your relationships with others. So, I mean, if you want a better... I genuinely believe if you want a better relationship with your wife, be a, be a better sales guy. You can you can learn how to have a better relationship with your wife if you're a better sales guy. Uh, you want a better relationship with your boss? Yeah. Be a great sales guy with your boss as well. Finding a new job is basically the biggest sales thing that everyone does in their lives. So everyone needs to learn more about sales. Everyone needs to be more passionate about it. People definitely need to stop looking down on it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's, there's so much that you can learn from great sales guys in their professions. If I had to pinpoint just one thing and say one thing about why this is so important, sales, what is sales at the end of the day is transaction, right? You are giving something of value to the other person. And that's why the other person is buying from you. That's ultimately at the end of the day, a sale. Why is this important? Any given point of time in life, you want to do something and you want to do something well, you can be great at it if you can learn to identify what can I bring of value to the other person? How can I add value to that other person's life by either something that I'm, it need not be anything that you sell at all. It could be something completely else. Just figuring out how you can add that to another person's life. If you can learn that, you can 10x, uh, you know, your life's goals. If you can just do this regularly and if you can do that well. 
and that's something that sales will teach you i think uh, manoj that was that was a good pitch ah thank you <laughs> <laughs> i really laughed at i have just been thinking about the wolf of wall street manoj did you watch it by any uh, chance <laughs> i did i did i did i watch all of these <laughs> <laughs> and he's like selling those pink sheets right he's selling those pink sheets and getting like 50% margin and everything but yeah i loved it what you said it's like building a relationship selling something with value long term relationship i think that's important here yeah very important and i think it should be mandatory trading anyone getting into startups or anything of that sort you cannot if you if you don't know how to be selling yourself and doing it and actually you know what people don't even know that they're selling but they are and a lot of time they like oh i am not selling in fact any company's biggest sales person is that company's ceo that he's the biggest sales guy of of that company so a lot of times people don't even realize they're selling but they actually are you're you're selling through the day yeah absolutely i love that so manoj what i would like to know sashwo told me you are a biotech business guy by day sports guy in the evening and full time dad how do you manage your time how do you get things done actually it is another great question but yeah uh, i think this operates through i'm fortunate to be working in a kind of setup where i have i'm not restricted by the hours that i work in right so it's not like you work from exposition of time so i'm fortunate to be working with a group of colleagues and people and management that allows me that flexibility of time so i spend my time wherever i am you know maximizing joy as uh, forget that lady's name the japanese lady's name okay mari kondo would put it right things which you uh, add to things which maximize joy remove what you don't so i look at time like that so at any given point in time uh, yeah i love uh, you know looking at valuation sheets and doing it i do that in the evenings there's nothing which i like more than kicking around a football with my son so i go ahead and and do that the thing is that if you focus on things that make you happy it gives you enough energy to focus on other things as well so if you can just make this a you know cycle of sorts you'll always find time for things and and then things that you can manage so that's that's a great aspect but yeah being a dad that's taken practice it's taken me 4 years of practice to say this i mean if you'd asked me this question 3 years ago i would probably have been crying i would have had tears in my eyes so <laughs> excellent thanks manoj i think um uh, thanks for your time as well and before we uh, close uh, today's show we would love to uh, know what you are reading these days and uh, any book recommendations and by the way i i just uh, got this book the code uh, breaker and started reading after your recommendation so any other books that really uh, inspires you or something that you would really recommend uh, folks that that's that's one of the book that they should really go for so okay let me split this into three things as you guys have noticed now i just love splitting things i don't know i don't know where i picked picked up that habit but yeah oh that's a splitting framework <laughs> is it okay <laughs> so what am i reading right now i'm reading tools of titans by tim ferris you guys must be very familiar yes. with uh, with his work and what he does absolutely fantastic book i've, I've obviously have not you know heard all his podcasts and stuff but just reading through it reading every two pages three pages of it is like just uh, figuring out something new or something that you know that i want to try in my in my personal life so i've started maintaining a diary not 100% of you know what the guests say usually resonates but there are one or two ideas that i pick out from maybe three chapters which i feel that okay great this is this is something that i can try from tomorrow this is this is something that i feel you know can can add value so yeah that's what that's what i'm uh, reading right now a book that i would recommend everyone to read is uh, I mean, this this book is is not a very popular one. In fact, it's a I don't even know if you if you, if you can find it on Amazon or something now. But it's a book by a uh, it's a book by an author called Robert Fulgham. Uh, the book's name is All I Really Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. That's the book's name. As you can see, that has been your favorite for the last fourteen years that I've known you. Man. It has been my go-to book for so you can imagine. I mean, a small book actually. Oscar, right? If the book changed, then what kind of a book recommendation would it be? So this is a testament that you know my recommendation go to book has not changed in fourteen years because that's what it is. The book's title says it. You know, you need you need to be kind, take a nap, <laughs> treat others like you treat yourselves, and you know, very fundamental uh, stories about humanity, about life, about this author's experiences, and it just resonates very deeply with me. um at many many levels i've tried to live a life like that i genuinely feel it's made me a 
happier person you know overall and uh, after my son has been born these are values that you know i try to inculcate in him so i'm kind of handing it on to the next generation now so don't want to sound too preachy but it's one of those books that you know i i recommend everyone to read because uh, i think it's a uh, you know great read for everyone for everyone to do it my third category was uh, you know a, a weird book which also is not like it is not something that you know can change lives or something but something which i keep rereading again and again and again my most read book it's a book called uh, the geography of bliss by a gentleman called eric weiner it's a book about the happiest places in the world um this gentleman is what he calls he calls himself a happiness researcher Mm-hmm. so this gentleman was sitting around one day and somebody asked him that okay you're a happiness researcher so what does your research constitute of and he said yeah i research about you know happy people at happy places and uh, he's like okay and then how do you quantify it he's like i don't know i need to go and figure out so this guy went there's actually i forget where in europe there is but there's actually a place which ranks an institute in bhutan is the happiest in the world in terms of you know gross national happiness or a rating like that so this guy visited all the top happiest places in the world and he's written it's basically a travel book it's a series of essays about people and why these people are happy in these places genuine joy to read absolute again i'll keep rereading it again and again gifting it to people again and again so yeah that was that was my third category but if if you guys find the time you guys should read all three <laughs> Absolutely thank you so much for your uh, time Manoj and definitely we'll read the recommendations and um, of course I mean if the pandemic ends hopefully uh, by later this year and early next year when actually we can travel anywhere to any part of the world then that would really come handy so yeah with um, future best predictions we will close the show and thank you so much for your time i hope uh, you had a good time with us as well thank you i had a great time i've been having a great time following your guys work in fact a lot of my reading material for the next 6 months mm-hmm. is basically what has been recommended by some of your guests wow. the best time i've had in the past 2 months was reading bessemer's anti portfolio mm-hmm. the kind of companies that they've missed I kind of told myself that hey look you can build a career into this. Thank you so much for your time uh, Manoj we loved having you on our show and uh, of course personally will uh, I'll be in touch with you. We would love to do that. Thank you so much Manoj. Sasirat <laughs>